Romans 8 is where we're going to be. End of Romans 8. Let's, uh, let's thank God by praying to him and asking for his wisdom. And we'll jump right in. Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for glimpses of sunshine. We thank you for hope, uh, for an evening that leads to a morning and new things ahead and the beginning of a new week. And we pray for us, the beginning of a new chapter in the story that you're writing. And so, God, we invite you now to speak to us, use our time in the scriptures to build us up and then send us out to do your work in your world. Amen. What, uh, what if? Today what we're going to read has to do with possibilities. And so I just want to get your mind thinking and started. What, what if the sun shined five days in a row here in the Portland metro area? What, what if? What if? Oh, would you, would you, I just want you to dream a little bit. Okay, what? What, 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 what would be different in your world, all right? Uh, let's, let's, move, let's move to another one. What if, uh, what if the Blazers made it past the first round of the playoffs and actually beat the Warriors? You know, what, what if? What, what if? Uh, okay, we'll go, we'll go broad for a second because I mean like sports, who cares, or sun, who cares? There are people to talk to you if you're in those categories. But what, what if, seriously, what if you had... Exactly what you needed when you needed it all the time. So that there was really no reason to worry. Because when you needed it, it was there. Like what if your world worked that way? What if it was supposed to? All right, let's, because we're in church and it's Sunday, let's talk about God. What if God's presence was real to you? Like in the moment where you're wondering what God thinks, you actually know. What if, as you're going throughout the day, you realize you're not alone, and the God who made it and controls it is there, right at your desk, right in your dorm room, right, right in the coffee shop or tea shop or water shop or whatever you shop. What, what, if, what if God's presence was real to us? What if you saw... The big picture. And that God is working in all things for your good. Not that all things are good. We saw that last week. But what if you saw God's perspective and that that, which is not very good, can actually be turned for your good? What, what if? Um, I'm asking a bunch of the same questions because I'm trying to do what Paul is about to do at the end of Romans 8. He asks a lot of questions and tries to stimulate something in the way you feel. So usually I talk to your brain for a bit. Today I hope something hits your brain. I hope. But I really want to talk to your soul. Because you're more than just a, a brain. You're a soul. You're someone. And you have more than just thoughts. You have feelings. And you have, you have desires. And so I want to speak to that. Because that's what Paul is going to do. But in order to do that, we have to look at last week. Some of you weren't here. What Paul does is he plays five on five. Five things he said last week that are true of you. And now he follows it up with what we're going to read. Five questions based on those five things. So if you separate it, you miss what he's trying to do. He is a genius writer. The five things we saw last week, God foreknows you or foreknew you. What does that mean? That God set his love towards you before you knew it. God already had designs for you before you knew it. And out of that, God predestined you. That was a, like a heady one last week. But we saw that 
God's predestining you is God knows your destination. He pre-designed your destination before it happened. In that, as he shows you his love, he's going to bring his love to the end, and he's going to bring you back to himself. Those who are in Jesus will be with Jesus forever. Wow, what good news. Now, God predestined you, and God called you. That is, I wasn't looking for God. God was looking for me. And at the right time, I was awakened to God who calls. And then God justifies. How can I spend time with God? Come on. Who deserves to be in God's presence? None of us. But the God who showed his love in advance, predestined us and called us, and then justified us. I was off and God made me right. God brings us back into relationship with him. I don't get back. God brings me back and gives me the pleasure of knowing him and loving him and, and living with him. This is what God does for us. And in light of that, the God who foreknew, predestined, called, justified, he glorified us. And we saw last week, Paul says, he already did it. The end of your life, the end of ten thousands upon ten thousands of years, God already knows where you're headed. And that's to be, glory is about presence. God glorifying you is God sees in advance, I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you to be with me. And forever we will be together. That is true of everyone following Jesus. That's true of you, right? So let's go back to the whole hope thing. This is the last of a series of messages in the section of Romans that's on hope. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are about the good news of or the hope of the good news. So what do we know about hope? If all of these things are true, and in order to read the end of Romans 8, you really have to read all of Romans 5 to 8 because he's been building, 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 building. Unlike a great movie or book, you pull it all in the end, you go, wow, that's what he does here. Why should I live with hope? If those five things are true, what if I saw all of life based on those five realities? When I'm hitting an impossible situation, what if I saw it in light of the God who does the impossible, right? That's what he's trying to do. Now, you and I should live with not just a trickle of hope and not just an occasional, like, weekend of hope, but you and I, above everyone else in this world, ought to live flooded with hope. Why? Because these things are true. Now, because we're human, we forget. So what I want us to do is we're going to work through Romans 8, 31 through 39. Let's just read on the screen, depending on what translation you have. I put verse 31 on the screen so that we can say it out loud together. It's just a good practice. You ready? One, two, three. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, everything he's about to say is hinging on that. What do we say in response to those five things? If all that is true, and we're living in a world that's mixed bag at best and really hard how do I respond? If God is for us, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us. He if all that's true, who can actually be against me if I am in God and with God? Now, what is he doing? I'll speak to your head for a second. He's using a tool called rhetoric. You ever hear it? You, know, that, you weren't supposed to answer that. That was a rhetorical question. Parents to kids. Shouldn't you clean your room? 
That's rhetorical. They already know they're supposed to clean it. You hounded them. Is your room clean? Not meant to be answered. It's like it's already given. It's a way of motivating, hypothetically, someone who doesn't want to do what they're supposed to do as every poor parent taps their child right now. Like, yeah, I told you. It's called rhetoric. Rhetoric is a tool that you can use if you're a writer or a speaker to make and drive home a point without you really knowing it. So what Paul does is he asks five questions that you're not supposed to answer. It's based on everything you just said, and it's supposed to just drum up something like, yeah, yeah, God's for me. Who can be against me? Yeah, yeah. So here's what I want to do. In order to get it, we need to do it, because at the end of our gathering, we're actually going to practice this. What we're going to do is we're going to take all that we've been reading about hope, we're going to put it into practice right here before we send you home. So let's just hypothetically, you're on the team, we're all on the team. I happen to be the coach. Why? I'm standing on a stage. And and we're going to do this, all right? So I'm going to ask a question and you're going to answer like you're the team. Think locker room, theoretically, before the big game. You with me? (laughs) Thank you. All right. So I'm the coach. You're huddled around. We're about to go out. This is the big game. Championships on the line. We're about to get the title, but the other team looks like they're going to beat us bad. So, so does the other team have a chance against us? No. It would be no coach. <laughs> if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. Okay? Does that team have any chance against us? No. Thank you. Are we going to go out there and give it 110%? Thank you. Who's going to get this trophy? Wow, you're good. Are we going to beat them and send them home? See, there you go. None of those are supposed to be answered, right? It's just, it's coaches do it all the time. Teachers do it all the time. What you can do is you stack these things to get people to think like, yeah. Now, athletes already know they have what it takes to win. But when you're in the big game, or up against the big challenge, sometimes we forget, don't we? So what Paul does is he uses this tool to stir their heart. And I hope that you leave with your heart stirred about these things that are true. Okay, the five questions. First question was in verse 31. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me flip it. If God is for you, who can be against you? Okay, that was good. That was really good. (laughs) Except it's wrong. (laughs) If you take it literally. So the question, if God is for me, who could be against me? Actually, if God's for me, a lot of people can be against me. I want you to see what he's doing. The answer was right, but it's meant for us to think and feel. If God is for me... A whole lot of people can be against me. Let me give you their setting. He's writing to them in Rome. Rome is the center of the Roman Empire of which Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is not pro-Jesus. Who can be against them? Only the most important person in the world who has the right of over their life. If God is for you, Caesar or Rome could be against you. This is why we need to be stirred is because just because God loves us doesn't mean we're not going to go through stuff where it feels like the world is about to crumble. Now, we know the culture is against them. Do you know when, when he's writing to them, 
that they live in the city that's eclectic, just like Portland. We have more versions of donuts than most U.S. cities. You just got to know this. I mean, if you want to go small and, you know, boutique, you got pips. If you want to go high-dollar adult donuts, you got, you got Blue Star. You got Krispy Kreme, which is the chain, and everything goes along, and you can watch all that fried food fry in front of you. You have all sorts of, and then we have Donut Palace, which is just down the road, which if you had a donut hole on the way in, um, it's like, it's a family-owned, it's a great little spot. There's all sorts of versions. Now, which is the best? Well, that's the one thing you're not allowed to say. <laughs> See, I didn't even mention voodoo, because that's an overpriced pink box, but that's another story altogether. Thank you very much. Although bacon on a naval bar is kind of glorious. Let's not kid ourselves. Protein and carbs. Getting back to my point. What you need to know is that in the world that we live in, there are times when God is for us, but others are against us. The one thing that was not allowed in, in the, the cultural thought is to say that there's only one God. In, in their view, Rome celebrated the pantheon of gods, the ancient historic gods, and the new, the newly revealed gods. So the one thing that was not allowable, which is why the Jews were despised, tolerated but despised in the day of Paul, is because the Jews claimed because God spoke to them. There's only one creator, and everything else is under the creator. And there's only one to be worshipped, and it's not them, it's Yahweh is his name. And that made the Jews stick out because they believed that there was one creator God. And the culture said, you've got to be kidding me. So then comes in this little group of people who go another step further. They claim that Yahweh sent his son to rescue all of the people that are living outside of God's ways. Oh, by the way, Rome killed this Jesus on a cross but this group, who has no buildings, no set um, book yet, because the New Testament hadn't been written, they have no clout. They claim, even though Rome totally killed him, Jesus rose again from the grave, and because of that, you can be set free and know the one creator God. Does that not sound crazy? It did in their day. Just like in our day, you are allowed to say anything other than Jesus is the living God and there is no life apart from Jesus. I can say it here, no problem. If I were an elected official and claimed that, I would be crucified in the city of Portland. So, all that to say, what Paul says to them ought to stoke us as well because they were the underdog just like you and following Jesus may feel like the underdog. So what do we need to remember? If God is for us, then who can be against us? That's the first thing. So what we want to do is, before we move forward, we want to name it. Because sometimes I say, like, who can be against us? Well, who's your who? Um, I want you to think about one enemy. And when I say enemy, I don't think, like, person, like, I hate them. But something that's keeping you from enjoying everything that God has for you. It could be a, a diagnosis, right? That thing that was diagnosed, man, that's going to that's gonna change my world. It, it could be unemployment. I would love to enjoy God, but I just can't make the money that I need. 
to do what I need to do. It could be a relational challenge. Some of us were just like, I'd love to enjoy life, but we just keep butting heads, coworker or relative or what, whoever it is, right? There are things that are stumbling blocks. It could be worry. It could be doubt. It could be confusion. It could be, if you don't know what it is, then just say stress, which has a source. So what I want us to do is I want you to think of one. Some of you have a few that you need to narrow it down. Think of one. And what I want us to do is because we're interactive today, I want, I, I want you to call it out. And when I go to the count of three, I'm going to invite you all to say it out loud together. Whatever that enemy is, and it changes over time, I want us to say it. Here's why. We're going to do something about it at the end. But I want you to call it out. You ready? Okay, that would be yes, coach. Okay, are you ready? Okay, one, two, three. Okay, now you, you got it out there. What you need to know is if God is for you, then that thing can be against you, but it can't stand up. Because look who's on your team. If God is in your squad, you have nothing to worry about, really. That's, now, do we worry? Yes. Should we? No. Because if God is standing on your behalf, what is that thing going to do to you? Now, if you're not convinced yet, again, he's, he's building on it. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Second question he throws out there is, will God not give us all things? He's saying here, if you're wondering what God thinks about you, all you have to do is think of Jesus. If God graciously, lovingly gives us his son, why in the world is he going to hold out now? He's not just trying to give you new information, just like I'm not trying to teach you something new. He's trying to get them to be stirred by what they already know. Here's what you ought to know. If you are foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified, then why are you worried about that problem when God's got you in his love beginning to end? And if that's true and God is for you, that thing will not keep you from God. It may keep you from some other things you may be wanting, but it's not going to stop God's presence. And it's not going to stop God's goodness for you. And then if you're wondering, well, does God really love me? Well, think of Jesus. If he gave his own son for your good, will he not graciously give you all things? Sometimes we think that God is stingy. Now, if, you, if you're a parent, you may get this. Because I get it in, in part. I'm not a perfect parent. We're not perfect parents. But I love my kids. And if I gave them, you know, the baby clothes, right? The little onesies. Now, the little... Um, what do you call the thing around the thing to get the spit? Okay, bibs. Right. <laughs> bibs used to be boring, but bibs have gotten very fashionable since our kids have grown up. So I see all these kids with these, like, suave bibs. Little, like, scar Anyway. So if I, if, I, if, I, if I spent the 10 bucks or the 20 bucks or whatever for that, because I love them, now, now that they're in high school and things cost 300,000 times more than that baby bib, Right? 
if I, if I did that out of love when they were young, and if I fed them a little when they were young, now that they're eating this out of house and home, will I not graciously give them all kids? Does my love for them lessen over time? No, it shouldn't. And, and, and as a parent, you're only getting an inkling of God's heart towards you. If God already gave his very self to bring you back, if Jesus on the cross can say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. If God can show that kind of love, how much more? You see, we're not perfect parents, but God is the perfect father. And, and he is for you if he gave you a son. Is he not going to care for your career? Is he not going to help you through that diagnosis? Is he not going to give you the wisdom to navigate that real relational challenge? The question is, do you believe it? See, all of this is already true. I'm not telling you to tell me you don't already know. But are you going to act on it and step into the game? All right, third question, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies or declares and says, you're now in the right. All of us were stacked up with all sorts of things that kept us from God. But God, in His Son Jesus, says, I now declare you not guilty. You did it. Oh, yeah. But you are now not guilty. And if Jesus really paid for our debt in that kind of way, who's going to bring a charge against you? If God's really forgiven you, if God's really set you free, how is anyone else going to come against you when the one who made it all sees you as a son, as a daughter, and as free in him? Who's going to bring a charge? Now, so much of life's troubles come from, from a lack of forgiveness. I hurt you, then you're going to hurt me. Or you slight me, I'm going to slight you. You ignore me, I'm going to ignore you. So much of our challenges come from a lack of forgiveness. You know, if we hurt one another, this is a novel idea. If we listened, if we waited, if we try to see where they're coming from, if, if we give up some of our rights to make things right, we could resolve things most of the time, right? But you need to know God has already in his love done everything to bring you back. So he's given us forgiveness at the deepest level so that if God has liberated you, who's going to really put a charge against you? Now, God loves you. Why? I've given a lot of thought about this. I have no idea why. I have no idea why God loves us. Why, why does he love us that much? To forgive again and again and again and show patience and kindness and mercy when we don't deserve it. I have no idea. Now, I'm a, I'm a dad, so I have a little insight. Because we come from him. Just like my, our kids. Like, Kids are wonderful. I'm, I'm just so pro-babies and kids. I love this church. Keep up the good work. You know, I, I love all the babies. But you know what? There is a difference of seeing a cute little child. Like, oh, 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 just holding a bunch before. and This is great. But then my love for that child compared to the love for my own kids is different, isn't it? Does that make me a bad person? No. It's, there is a blood, there's a deep connection between me and my two kids. Therefore in some way, shape, or form, in a way we can't understand. 
God's love for you goes so deep. You're made even in his image and likeness. And because you have his very imprint on your life, his love for you is bigger. It's bigger than we give him credit for. God's love is so big. Who's going to condemn you when Jesus sets you free? Okay, fourth question. Who then is the one that condemns? Look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is always interceding for us. Who, who then is the one that's going to condemn you? In other words, if God set you free at the deepest level, who's going to bring you away from God? Who's going to say, no, disqualified, you don't get the love of God? Now remember, Paul's not actually asking people to answer the question. He's just saying what they've already heard again and again and again. Jesus has already done the freeing. And if you think you're alone in relational challenges, trust me, you are not alone. We're all dealing with stuff. But yet in the middle of it, who's the one that's going to condemn you? Let's be honest. We love God. We love Jesus. We fall short. <laughs> all of those are true. Okay, so in one sense, like, well, what's going to separate us from the love of God? Like, yeah, God loves me. I know that, Jose, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. So I am, yeah, maybe you or others, but not me. And what Paul's saying as we step onto the field of life for the big game, which is called your day-to-day -day choices and decisions, he wants you to know, and God wants to remind you this morning, there are all sorts of voices that are going to try to condemn you and say, God's not for you, God's not with you, God saw that, you're less than. And what he wants you to know is if Jesus died and was raised to life and is now seated, interceding for you, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that God's, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? That was a metaphor because the person at the right hand of the king or queen or Caesar had all the authority. So all they had to do was the boss just looks to their right and says, hey, I want you to go do X. And the person who's seated at the right hand has the authority to do whatever the person is in charge. And it's his way of saying in a, a language in Rome where Caesar's in charge and has all of his authorities, Jesus is the one stepping in the middle for you. Not accusing, but he's stepping in the middle, saying, yeah, I know they did, but look at what I did. The Hebrews 7 explains this. Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 24 says, because he lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Jesus is like the role of a priest, and they would get this in their day. The priest, whether it was in the Jewish temple or in the pagan temple, is the same. The priest stands between the people and God. And the goal of the priest is to help the people connect with God. And Jesus, in that same picture, has a permanent connection point. And so Jesus is able to rescue completely those who come to God through him because he always lives, he's alive, to intercede. You see, God knows my stumblings and God knows my failings and God knows my issues. But that shouldn't keep me from the love of God because Jesus is already authorized. He paid our debt in full and he's authorized 
And he stands bringing us close to the Father. And whenever I feel far, I shouldn't. Because I'm not far. Because God's love has brought me close. So I'm hoping this morning to stir you. To stir you to believe what you already know to be true. But there's a big difference between it knowing it up here and knowing it deep within. That affects the way I live. And I want you to be stirred because if God is for you, no one can be against you. And if God has liberated you in Jesus, then no one can accuse you and no one can condemn you. And no one can separate you from God's love. Now, if you don't believe that, we'll go to the fifth question. But let's read verses 35 to the end. Verse 35 says, Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all of creation, which is like everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I want to talk to your head for a second because he makes a quote that we may not catch. He quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. And because Paul's read the Bible, all he does is read the Bible in light of Jesus. So let me tell you what he's trying to say to stoke the fire of belief. In Psalm 44, it's a lament. And what a lament is, uh, I'm crying out to God, why? God, why? In Psalm 44, if you read the whole thing, you just need to know this. The people are suffering, they're in exile, they feel far from God, and they haven't done anything wrong. Now sometimes I feel far from God, why? Because <laughs> of me. I did it. Of course I feel far from God, He's holy, I'm not. Right? Or at least I don't act that way. So there are times when we're suffering, we're like, yeah, I did that. In Psalm 44... They didn't do anything wrong, but yet they are suffering. So what we need to know is there are moments in life when you're struggling, suffering, tempted, trials, all sorts of stuff, and you actually didn't do anything wrong. What do you do then? Look at Psalm 44, 6 to 8. This is what he's pulling on, although he doesn't quote this portion. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. In other words, I'm not counting on my army. But you, God, give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. In light of suffering and struggle, even when you haven't done anything wrong, the psalmist cries out saying, God, I trust you. And so in the same way, what is Paul saying about why? We will never be separated from Jesus' love. Write this down. It's a quote. I think that will be helpful. God will save his people, not despite their sufferings, but through and even because of them. You see, following Jesus doesn't ever promise you. Sometimes we get thrown off in our faith because we think, if I follow the way of Jesus, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. Psalm 44 is about that. 
Sometimes God's people are doing the right thing. Suffering comes anyway. But in Psalms and in Jesus and in the New Testament, God always saves his people, not despite their sufferings, but through and even because of them, God is faithful. Nothing can keep you from God's presence and from God's love. Now, I want to paint the full picture here before we round it out and we live it out, okay? When I say that nothing can separate you from God's love, I'm saying God's perspective towards you is set. He loves you because he loves you. That doesn't mean, though, that everyone will experience the benefit of how he loves us. Let me give you an example that Jesus gave. Luke 15. You don't need to go there. It's super familiar. There's a kid. There's actually two kids in the house. One brother stays in the house. The other brother says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my money. And money comes when you're gone. So I want my inheritance now. What does the father do? He gives it to him. Which in their culture, he should have beat the snot out of his son for treating the father so disrespectfully. But he doesn't. He says, here's the money. So the kid goes off. He says, great, now I got cash. What do I do with cash? Ladies, aha, party, aha. He spends all his money. Now he's got nothing. Can't find a job. Far from home. He's eating food that's so low grade, it goes to the pigs. And then it is mine. Oh my gosh. In my father's house is more than enough. My servants are living better than me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to dad. And just say, dad... I'm not worthy to be your son. I just, I want to be your servant. And then he comes home. What does he find? Dad is out. Binoculars on. Looking. Sees his son. Runs out. Middle Eastern men don't run. They're, they're mature. The kids run. He's a stately man. And he acts like a kid. Hugs his son. What does the son get? Put a robe on him. That makes him not a servant. But a child, a love child. Put a ring on his finger. What does that mean? He has purchasing power. That's like Apple Pay, first century. <laughs> he has the right. He has the ring of his dad. Sandals on his feet. Slaves wear shoes. The, the, the children, the respectable ones, even though he did all of that, when he was here in a mess, his view of his father was thrown off. Dad won't accept me back. I will be second class. The entire time, what I want you to get, in, what Jesus is trying to say is, the entire time the father loved the son because he was looking to show him his love if he would just come home. So what can keep you from experientially feeling the love of God? Continual unrepentant sin. I gotta be honest. Jim, like, man, I just wish I could do whatever I want and have God's love. <laughs> Read Luke 15. That's not how it works. But when we turn back to God, what the son gets is fatted calf, party. My son was lost, he's found. He was dead, but he's alive again. God's love never changed for the son. What changed was the son's perspective of the father's love. So I say what Paul is trying to say to you. Look at the list of stuff that's against you. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, present, future, powers, height, depth, anything else in creation. If you love God and are called according to his purpose, 
all of that may be real to you. But it can't keep you from God's love. God's love for you is constant even though our life is inconsistent and full of struggle. Now, why is this important? Paul's traveled the Roman Empire, sharing the good news, planting churches. And on the outskirts of the empire, the empire is starting to come against Jesus' people. He's writing to people in Rome because it's going to come to them too. By the way, after he writes the letter, future Caesars later, severe persecution comes to this group of people because of their faith in Jesus. And what he's saying is, circumstantially, your life may be hard, but God's love is constant, and you need to remember that because nothing can keep you from God's attitude and love towards you if you are in Him. And my friend, that's why we live with hope. It doesn't mean our experiences are all good, but it means that God is at work even in all of them. So verse 37, I want to highlight and then let's do something about it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. You see, coming against real stuff that's against me, but God's on my side, what's the end result? In life, if God is for you, you are more than a conqueror. That phrase, I love how the New, uh, New Living Translation puts it. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is sure through Christ. Overwhelming victory. I love that. Now, go back to our locker room, you know, before the game. Come on. Can we do it? Yeah, yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah, coach. Here's the difference. In a game, you can still lose. Right? You go out there, you give it 110%, and you do all of it, and you still come out. No trophy, stomped on, ESPN, highlight reel, you know, and you, you failed. In Jesus, that's an impossibility. Because God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. He already sees your ultimate victory. And I need you to hear this. Because he sees your future victory, your today victory is for sure. Not because of you, but because you have overwhelming victory in him who loved you. And if you're loved that much and cared for that much and God's concern in his gazes towards you that much, why are we in the locker room scared to death? It's because we forget all that God has done for you. Obviously, I'm thoroughly convinced. And my goal here this morning was real simple, is to reconvince you of God's great love. And when you know His love, it will give you the hope to walk through really gnarly situations. Doesn't mean that you're going to escape them. Jesus doesn't escape the cross. He goes through the cross, through the grave, and He's alive. And ultimate victory is won for Him and for you. If you're in Jesus... You know what the worst case scenario is? You don't get 157 years of bliss. Now why 157? It just sounds good. Now I, I said it because none of you are going to live to 157 years, right? You just, I don't care what kind of protein shakes you drink and what kind of yoga you do. You're not going to make it 157 years. All right. So the worst case scenario for your life if you're in Jesus is you don't make it to your perceived view of a long life. 
But if you're in Jesus, you get God now and God in the future, and there's nothing this world can do to take that away from you. Man, that puts a new perspective on my bills, on my challenges, on my struggles, and my joy. It's a huge perspective. It's in Jesus. Overwhelming victory. All right, so here's my challenge, because I could see it. I read faces. This is what I do. Two responses to this phrase, overwhelming victory. One is some of you are like are there. And I, I could actually point you out. And if we were a little more ethnic in this church, I would say amen, but we're very white. So we'll just, we'll just, you know, like, just a little light clap, right? I'm praying for more ethnic flavors so we'll be released. Thank you very much. Come next week. We need you. So, so yeah, that, that's true. But there is, there, there is the other larger portion where you're like, overwhelmed victory. Jose, that's a pipe dream. That's like a Sunday morning pep talk to get me through my week. You don't know how things are stacked against me. And I'm just here to remind you that Jesus loves you because he loves you. And if he loves you, your circumstance isn't going to separate you from his love. And if you have his love, which is his presence, then what's going to keep you from overwhelming victory when he's already got it? The question is, what are we going to do in light of my real challenges? I, I just have a word of advice to you. In your moments where you don't feel like overwhelming victory is yours, pursue Jesus. Now that sounds so simple and Christian. Here's what I mean. Pursue him. As long as the sun is over here in the slop, he doesn't realize what's waiting at home. Right? It's when he goes back to his father that he realizes, oh, he's for me. And he's going to work this for my good. Pursue him. What does that look like to pursue him? I'll tell you a couple things. I hear it consistently. I'm speaking from, like, experience. He's going to try to pick you off by isolating you. Pursuing Jesus means don't give up on connecting with people who are also following Jesus too. Because what, when you surround yourself with people who are following Jesus, they're going to see when you're down and they're going to pick you up. They're going to they're remind you what's true. But if the enemy can get you alone, he's going to start to feed your cranium when things aren't, aren't true. When the kid's alone with the slop, you're only going to be a servant. You're lucky if he, your dad accepts you back. It's just a lie, right? When he gets home, he realizes, oh, God's for me. But he was alone. And so don't live in Jesus alone. Surround yourself with people who will be there for you and you will be there for them as a, as a beacon of hope and help. So, so don't, don't go it alone. Pursuing Jesus includes looking at what he has said and done. So when you, when you feel like overwhelming victory isn't yours, you know what's going to happen? Your mind, it has not happened. The Bible, I was enjoying it, starting to read it, and then I forget about it. I just forget about it. And the enemy uses that as a trick because where your brain is, your heart is going to follow and your life's going to go. So, but I don't need this. I got Netflix. I could binge watch 300 hours of useless drama that has nothing helpful or true, but it just coats and masks my own pain. Or I could turn to God 
life-giving words of people who've encountered God and found ultimate victory, the choice is yours. What I'm saying is when you don't feel it, you can go to people who will help you and you can go to God who will help you or you can, you can go it alone. But what you need to know, what's true of Jesus is now true of you. And if Jesus is in victory, you're in victory and now you can experience it. Okay, that's my pep talk. Thanks, team. Uh, now we have to go and into the game. Scary, right? In the locker room, it's easier. What we're going to do is going to use the back half of this gathering, and we're going to respond in ways that are appropriate. So I'll tell you what we're going to do, then we're going to do it. In a moment, we're going to open up the table straight, and we're going to invite you to pick up the bread and the cup. It's designed for those who follow Jesus. Some of you are like, new to this, you're like, I don't know, what does that mean? For those who are following Jesus, Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me, remembering his life and death and resurrection as our hope to encounter the living God. So if that's you, pick it up. If that's not you, not yet, no worries. But then what we're going to do is when you go back at the end of the song, we're going to invite you to circle up, mess up the chairs, and connect with three or four people. Three is better. Four is okay. Because we're going to give you the opportunity now to speak what is true. So when you get together, uh, we're going to ask you just in your own way, someone start, where, where's God giving you victory? Just thank Him. God, thank you for, thank you for, thank you for. Or equally important, if you're facing something, to speak that out before you eat and drink. God, I'm asking for your help in. And don't get hyper-specific. God, you know that challenging relationship. God, you know that failure that I keep stepping into. But what we want to do is build each other up by not lying to one another. It's easier to say, how's everything going? like 20% great and 80% hurting. <laughs> and so, so we want to be a people that step into real life experiencing the ultimate victory. If you're not there, what's going to happen is faith arises as you hear people thanking God for what He's done. Because if He cares for them, His love for you is equal. And, and if God spontaneously leads you to pray for someone, do that. You know? If a verse comes to mind, like, saying that, then just go to your app, because you can't remember where the verse is, and just type in keywords and it will show up the verse, you know, and, and share that verse with him, whatever the case may be, alright? Can you do this? Yes. Do you want to? Yes! You're dying to! Even if you don't feel like it. Because this is what people do who love Jesus, alright? Stand on your feet if you would. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to Hear what's true and now live it. God, we invite you now to work in and through us. Lord, give words of hope to your children that will stir experiential hope in the lives of those who hear it. Lord, as we lift up these concerns to you, we do it knowing if you're for us, nothing can really accused, condemned, stand against us. Nothing can. And so we want to declare your overwhelming victory.